You're listening to Wisdom Radio. This is Andy Height, and today we're going to travel back in time to try to understand ancient wisdom that's encoded in myth, hidden in art, and painted on cave walls. My guest is paranormal researcher Marie D. Jones. She's a frequent guest of this show and a prolific researcher and author. Her most recent book with co-author Larry Flaxman is called Viral Mythology. She's appeared on the History Channel's Nostradamus Effect, Coast to Coast AM, The Shirley MacLaine Show, and NPR. You can visit wisdomradio.org where I've posted links to her website. And while you're there, I'm hoping you'll join my mailing list, and I'd love it if you subscribe to this show on your favorite Apple or Android podcasting app. All right. Welcome, Marie D. Jones. So happy to have you back. It's good to be back. How have you been? Well, good. Busy and crazy and kind of glad that the holidays are coming because I I think I might get a little bit of a break. (laughs) (laughs) I know. I just can't believe that you clip at the pace that you do. And I'm always amazed when I read the next great book that you've come out with. And you and Larry have outdone yourself here with Viral Mythology. Yeah, Um, I really like this book. It's something different for us a different direction, and uh, it was a challenge to write, but I, I just love the book. I love the information that it, it avenues that we didn't go yeah. down before. What are some of the more interesting ideas that you think were communicated over time related to our connection to something greater than, than our immediate existence on this planet? You know, my I think... What really got this whole book started was asking the simple question of, is there any truth in stories? I mean, that's really the question that got this whole book off the ground, was Larry and I asking each other, you know, when you read a story, a myth, a Roman, Greek, Norse, whatever, or a, a, a story in the Bible or another religious text, is there truth in there? Is there some accuracy, scientific fact, in a historical event embedded in that fictional tale? And the truth is, yes, there is. In fact, we probably can learn more about who we were, where we came from, <clears throat> excuse me, and what our true history is by looking at those things than we can by you know, any any kind of um, nonfiction research and statistical sure. studies, because truth is embedded in storytelling in a way that survives any kind of change, any kind of evolutionary change. Those archetypal images and themes and motifs that show up from the beginning of time when stories were being told over campfires orally to today's movies and television series, they're the same. They are the same. The so the good are, and like the good and the evil, or the the dark and the light. Yes, the good will triumph, and the, the the duality that we all deal with, and um, those archetypal things are the same because they're so universal. They were universal then, and they're universal now. So I think probably for me the most fascinating thing that came out of this was realizing that a huge chunk of our history can be gleaned from the art 
the the way buildings and edifices and monuments and churches and temples were built, the way uh, the stories that were told, the myths, the legends, the folklore. There's so much truth in there that we have to somehow try to dig out from, you know, from the fictional elements, just like we embellish things today, we fictionalize. Um, but, you know, it's amazing how much of our history we still have yet to learn if we did that. Do you think we can glean some of that knowledge just by looking at the symbols? Uh, well, you have to know what, how to interpret them correctly. And, but is, is there a school of thought that there are certain symbols that if you just gaze at them, they can unlock some hidden connection that you might oh, not? Oh, yeah, I think so. I think crop circles are like that. I think that one of the reasons why um, something like that really affects us is because we get it on that subconscious level. And we get it. We get it in a much more profound way than if somebody said, "Now look at Exhibit A. You know, right. You'll notice five swirls here." I mean, that's so cerebral. That's the rational left brain. That that I don't know. To me, that is not as profound to us as the kind of knowledge and information that hits our subconscious. Because what we're told, what ninety percent of our of our behavior, thoughts, and beliefs come from the subconscious. So I do think that that's true. Well, there are some who believe that certain symbols relate to frequency. And I don't know if you've ever seen that YouTube, that viral video on YouTube, um, where somebody is putting sand on top of a speaker. Oh, yeah, the resonance. The yeah, resonance. And then powder. every time it re- the sound is, frequency is going up, ooh, and every time it reaches yeah. a different frequency, another pattern emerges in the sand. Right. Yeah. yeah, I absolutely think that that's, that, you know, resonance and vibration and frequency are, are things that we don't just feel and hear, but I think that that sensation is also uh, evoked in us when we look at a symbol that has a profound meaning behind it. Even if rationally we don't understand, oh, I'm looking at this mandala or this beautiful, you know, image. I'm not quite sure in my rational mind what it means, but that deeper part of me gets it exactly. Almost, knows yeah. exactly what it is trying to say. I think that form of communication is that deeper truth that is embedded in stories, in myths, in legends, folklore, in in art, in rock paintings, in the way that we built uh, Stonehenge and, you know, monuments and the pyramids and all of that. The symbolism is just rampant. Well, but, one of the uh, one of the things you hear a lot these days is this idea of waking up, remembering who we are. Right. Do you think some of... I mean, do you think in looking back that can help us remember who we are and why we're here and what we're supposed to be doing? <laughs> I think so, and I think we're sort of crying out for that right now. As you said, we're we're in a time of such profound angst, <laughs> yeah. and and people are miserable, they're unhappy, they don't even know why, they're just feeling empty. I think what we're realizing is, as we got more evolved... We had more pretty, shiny things that we made to surround ourselves with. But, oops, we forgot about the most profound, important things. We set those aside. 
did we set them aside or did were there were some of those things um threatening to power structures and because you you have that one chapter on hidden wisdom secret truths maybe we can talk about that a little bit and um you know trying to decode some of the um information that may have been threatening i mean i think um institutions and and authority figures definitely <clears throat> made sure that there was that you know they remained the middleman between us and any kind of enlightenment or wisdom that could cut them out of power absolutely manipulation over time has been amazing and it continues to this day but i still think we're you know we we call ourselves victims of that but at the same time we're buying into it by going along with that mentality that, oh, the more technology that we develop, the better off we're going to be as a species. Oh, the more stuff I have, the the happier I'm going to be. Oh, the more, you know, the mm-hmm. the material stuff. We're buying into that, too. Those the powers that be don't even have to push us. We're doing just fine distracting ourselves from the deeper truths of who we are and yeah. what it means be alive we're doing a real good job of that but it does seem as though there's a shift happening and that people are breaking away from some of those traditional power structures and questioning more and also turning inward um to their own higher wisdom and their own direction which i think it's a very interesting time that way yeah i think we finally many of us are collectively reaching a sort of tipping point where Wow. Okay. So we've <laughs> we've tried it all these other ways, and and it, we're still miserable. Uh, we're not. Our our technology seems to be evolving at a rate that is about to overtake our humanity. I think you can see evidence of that every day. We've lost our humanity in a lot of ways. Well, the problem is, is because we've taken the focus off of the part of history that made us human, and it, it's not just the stuff that we can create and make, and and the innovations that we can come up with. It's the stories and the way that we communicate with each other. And the love and, we, and the caring. And you and, you know, you do see that. Um, and also, look how, we, look how we treat nature today. We yeah. treat it like it's trash and we can just abuse it and expect it always to be there to regenerate and take care of us. We have no respect for nature at all. Yet. Well, there's also a very good wall between us and some realities. Yes. Like even like the animal <laughs> agriculture. You know, unfortunately, in, in, in some of my work, I have to look at that, yeah. you know, straight yeah. on. And it's very disturbing. And I think a lot of people in their day-to-day lives, they're just so busy with things, they don't want to think about it. Yeah, and it's so, like disconnect from the things that we should be facing and the things that are making us unhappy on that deeper level, even even if we deny looking at them, they're still there. They're still affecting us. And I think technology has done two things. I think it's helped create that wall, but it's also broken it down a bit because sometimes, you know, you're on the internet, you're on social networking, you can't help but see some of these things. There are people out there that want to draw attention. Yeah, you know, and it's very, you know, it's very hopeful. Um, I recently saw a story of a young man who has come up with a way to pull garbage out of that um, garbage patch, you know, the huge right. 
ocean right. ocean garbage patch. And he's gotten quite a lot of attention. He's 14 years old. And that's amazing. Kids are going to save us. I'm <laughs> telling <know>. you. Because <laughs> I think the younger generation is so disgusted with what we're handing them. Yeah. Uh, I mean, a lot of, you know, a lot of kids love the technology, but I think they're also feeling like, wow, you know, my parents are kind of miserable. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> There's something missing here. And hopefully they'll they'll wake up and they'll realize. And you, know, you talk about hidden knowledge and hidden history. What I love is that it seems like almost every week I, you read about a new archaeological excavation that has turned up, uh, you know, some object or a little village that totally pulls the rug out from what we thought our history was or what how old we thought a certain civilization was. Oh, great, because I wanted to touch on that. And you call, did you call those archaeo-enigmas? Archaeo-enigmas, <laughs> yeah. They're just objects and things that really kind of shake up the scientific community and also the public because they often change the way that we look at our history. They may be dated far older or are far more modern than where they were found. So it kind of calls to attention, okay, wait a second. You know, some of them are like batteries or light bulbs that right. were not in use at that time. And yet, wait a second, you know, did they have the same kind of genius that we have today? Did some other alien civilization give them this technology and it was just sort of suppressed later? Or have What's we been here? here? <laughs> or have we been here before? In other have words, if our very uh, global society right now were to collapse, and I don't know if you've ever seen that film, I think it's on PBS or the History Channel, of what happens in 100 years if um, a city is left unattended. <laughs> and it says the nature oh. just completely swallows it up. You know, right. all the, the over, buildings, yeah. the cement, the everything. What would be left? How would we even know that we were here? I mean, maybe yeah, maybe we've done this before. Yeah, I think there is a, a very active community out there in search of evidence of our real history, because I think most of us agree that the history that we get from school textbooks is very limited. I mean, obviously, it's a history that's created on a very limited amount of information that was able to make it viral, but that also was probably manipulated by the authorities that wanted to convey a particular history for their own means. I think we all agree on that. So when you have people out there, and, and they can be anthropologists, paleontologists, you name it. You have people out there that are getting down into the earth and looking for the clues of who we really are, and they're finding fascinating clues and discoveries that totally change some of the things that we have accepted as fact. And then what's really cool is to go look at the stories, the myths, religious parables and texts, and you and if you find evidence of what you just discovered in a physical sense in those stories, you start to realize just how much truth they were telling us in all of these other ways. You know, rather than I like when you can take something like the flood myth. The flood motif shows up in, in every mythology and biblical texts and other religious stories and the Epic of Gilgamesh, you name it, there's a flood myth. 
mm-hmm. and it all points to a particular event that probably occurred about 12,000 years ago. So you take that, you see this in all these stories, you think, did this really happen? Because, wow, everybody globally is telling stories about it. Then when you go to the scientific community and you have an archaeological expedition here and here and here that dig up evidence, or you have a, a geologist that shows on the sediment record, you know, there's evidence that there was probably a very big flood about ten to 12,000 years ago. It's like the light bulb goes off. Okay, now we know that in our history, there was indeed a great flood. And the story of Noah and the story of Gilgamesh and all these other wonderful flood stories, well, not all wonderful, I mean, a lot of people died, but um, they, they were telling us a basic historical truth. Sure, they probably embellished the way that we, you know, when there's a a natural disaster years later when we're telling somebody what happened to us, we embellish. We don't remember every solid detail, you know, and I I can attest to that from being in some big earthquakes when I was younger. When I tell people about it now, I'm like, oh, wait a minute, did I really do that or did that happen? You know, memory tends to embellish in different ways. There's still a core truth there that this flood happened. And you've got it on the scientific end, and you've got it on the, you know, the the information or communication end as well. It's just fascinating, and I also uh, forget who is looking into this, but there are some ancient, what appear to be mining sites in South Africa that date back two hundred fifty thousand years. Have you heard anything about? I haven't, but it just seems like well, you know every yeah. time I look at. Exactly. It must be hard to keep track of all these things. It's like, oh, they found under somebody's living room in in Turkey, you know, evidence of a civilization that they never knew about. It's like, whoa. (laughs) Just layers and layers. Yeah, and and what is beneath that? You know, if they dig down deeper, they'll find something else. It just just shows you how the Earth itself still holds the key to so much of the truth about who we are and where we came from. Well, you mentioned cro- you mentioned <laughs> you mentioned uh, cro- crop circles and and of course that brings us to the topic of of a, a, you know uh, alien civilizations or yeah. perhaps they're living among us. There's lots of different theories. And mm-hmm. yeah, certainly what 90% of crop circles are fabricated, but then there's these the 10% right. that can't the be explained. Right. <laughs> right. Well, it's like 90% of UFO sightings are easily later, you know, proven to be something identifiable, but it's that small percentage that that isn't. And you know, with the ancient alien or the ancient astronaut theory, what's really fascinating is all of, and Larry and I call it circumstantial evidence, because we really can't prove it. We weren't there. We really can't prove but there's enough circumstantial evidence to sort of lean toward the fact that, yes, all of these cultures that drew and carved and painted these shocking images and carvings that look like little people wearing helmets and or alien craft or spaceships or what have you, were, were they just imagining those? Did, were those people that actually visited them, or were they interacting with these people? We don't know because we weren't there, but when you see enough of it, and then you look at the written record, and you've got stories and myths that involve flying craft and strange beings from above, and they may have been called deities then, or angels, or gods and goddesses, but perhaps we were really talking about aliens. 
left. And yeah. that's when you start to think, okay, <laughs> something must have went down. And maybe more right. than well, one. Right, well, that sort of is when it, that's sort of when it gets interesting. I have yeah. an interview I did on the Hopi, uh, the Kachina dolls, and how right. they actually represent these Kachinas or these... Um, at one time, the, they interacted with with these beings, um, and right. one of the beings being the ant people that led them down underground and saved them at one point from some natural disaster. I forget what it was, but they, you know, they have the large eyes and they live underground. And then you wonder, well, you know, how much of that is true? And I guess that's part of your job is trying to weed out the story from the truth. And you know, you have to remember too. I think people have to really remember that. The scientific verbiage that we have today, the ability to talk about quasars and multiple universes and, you know, the quarks and, and just the verbiage and the language that we have today, the scientific knowledge we have today, it wasn't around then. But that didn't mean they didn't understand their surroundings. It just meant that they described things with a different vocabulary. So, again, now we have a lot of scholars that are saying, is it possible that all of these myths and stories of deities, of angels coming from the sky and falling angels and demons and and gods and goddesses, could these, whoever these people were that wrote these stories, be talking about visitors from other civilizations? But they didn't have the scientific acumen to say, yes, these people came from, you know, the universe B or the Alpha Centauri system in our universe on a craft fueled by zero point energy. I mean, they didn't have that vocabulary or that understanding. So they're telling us in their own way, <clears throat> excuse me, that they were interacting with these other civilizations. And so, yeah, again, it's really up to us to try to properly interpret what they meant. Is that what they meant by that? Right, but, and and even were the civilizations native to this uh, Earth or from someplace else? Because even right, even right. today, when you think of um, when we break through and communicate with, let's say, a previously isolated indigenous culture that sees us flying overhead in our helicopters. Um, it must be quite a shock to their system. And so they could write about that on a cave wall that could be discovered in 3,500 years. Right. And think about that. I mean, if native, if a native tribe that has never seen anything other than <clears throat> their little area of the Amazon forest suddenly saw the shuttle, the space shuttle, or, you know, a jumbo jet or a drone or what have you, they're going to look at that as being gods, as being these supernatural beings. Because, again, they don't have the understanding of the scientific or technological vocabulary to describe those things. And they may not even know that those things are in existence because of their own limited area of perception. So, again, were our ancestors limited in their circle of perception that they didn't necessarily know what was going on on the other side of the planet. So when they saw something new or when they interacted with a new group of people, a new culture, there probably were things that felt very alien, quote unquote, to them. But again, when you have all these drawings and stories of things coming from the sky, 
and they look like helmets and, you know, a hazmat suit kind of thing, moon suits, that's what I'm looking for. Mm-hmm. It's really hard to, to just throw all that under the rug and discount it. Well, especially if it's coming from multiple sources. Exactly. If it was just one source, then, you know, (laughs) it might be an anomaly. But, yeah, when it comes from all different regions of of the Earth and different cultures that have different understandings, different experiences, different environments that they live in, then it kind of, you start to think, okay, again, like flood motifs, if you're hearing about it everywhere, you know, where there's smoke, there's probably fire, at least the beginning of a fire. So well, I, I sometimes wonder also if, let's say there was an ancient, a very advanced ancient alien race that came to this earth at one time, and maybe they helped to do some genetic modification of us, or, you know, there's a lot of theories. Right, right. Um. But what if they left some clues and some symbols in the form of the various pyramids and the um, the structures and and light and sound and symbolism right. and Absolutely. and if it's somehow designed, if it has some kind of design to it to help us um, reach higher levels of potential um, as human beings and. I'm always yeah. fascinated with that kind of thing. What, what do you What do you think about that? Well, I think the more we learn about these monuments, and the more we learn about Stonehenge, now now we have research that shows that it's sort of a resonant chamber where sound was able to sort of travel and echo around the rocks and create within the circle uh, altered states of consciousness. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, and the pyramid. I mean, we all Certainly. know that there's been a ton of research into the resonant frequencies of the king's chamber, and obviously, something could have. And, and by something, I you know, an ancient culture from above, from another uh, planet or elsewhere, another universe could have. And it could have even been us in the future. Could have come back and tried to convey to us the important wisdom and the profound wisdom that we needed to survive and to carry on as human beings. But today we're left with trying to interpret exactly what it means and what it should be used for. And I think we're getting a little closer. Um, And you'll hear people say, too, that aliens may have come and helped us make these leaps in technological advancement in medicine and scientific understanding that we may not have been able to make ourselves. I'm not sure that I agree with that because I know human beings are capable of making great leaps in understanding in short periods of time. We've seen that happen over history. Mm -hmm. Um, But there are a lot of people who think that some of those bigger leaps probably involved a little help from our friends. And and again, the, the drag is that we weren't there. So all we have left is their oral stories, their written stories, the written record, the stuff that we can dig up from these excavations, the edifices and art that they left behind. What are the clues? What are they trying to tell us? Are we interpreting the clues correctly? It is a huge job. Uh, and I think it's one Do where you, mm-hmm. we may understand the truth on a, on a subconscious level far. Oops. 
I think you're breaking up. Wait, come back. Hello? 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 Okay. <laughs> Uh-oh. <laughs> <laughs> you're, you're on a landline, yeah? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. It's probably my cell phone that I'm picking you up. But um, yeah, I just, the very end of what you were saying trailed out. But I think. Oh, okay. I think we got the, the gist of it. Well, yeah. I'm going, this is the part of my program where I do something a little bit different. Um, I, I'm very interested in people who are um, psychic archaeologists, who are pulling in intuitive wisdom. And, and I, there's a lot of people who are doing that. Um, and what's always interesting is when you can take some of that information, put it in front of like somebody like you, who is a, more, a researcher, somebody who um, understands the scientific process, to see what you think of it. Right. So I have something here I want to read you to see okay. how, what you think of it. So this is a intuitive, uh, some intuitive wisdom on the pyramids. Um, water and air are similar conductors of vibrations, resonators, aligning molecules in a signature pattern. Each pattern opens a door. Each pattern is a key that unlocks a doorway to another universe. It's for time travel, for universe hopping in one respect. Um, but there's more. It's for soul elevation, for spiritual travel, for spiritual connections, traveling back and forth in time. So th this idea is, I guess, that the um, the patterns that are found, the, the symbolic patterns that actually can unlock a doorway, unlock right. something inside of us that then would allow us to to travel. Right, or experience a whole different reality. And as as somebody who writes a lot about the scientific side of it, I will tell you <laughs> um, that Larry and I wrote a book called The Resonance Key, Exploring the Links Between Vibration, Consciousness, and the Zero Point Grid. And we also wrote a follow-up called The Grid, where we talk a lot about the R-word resonance and how it is a a driver of reality. It's a mechanism by which you have everything vibrates. I mean, nothing is solid. We know that at the quantum level, nothing is solid. Everything is vibrating. Particles really exist as both particle and wave until they are measured or observed into a fixed form. Mm -hmm. The wave function is collapsed. So at the most basic level of reality, Everything is vibrating, and everything is vibrating at different frequencies, at different resonances. When those resonant frequencies align, they create a new energy, a new vibration, a new form, if you will. But there's also the possibility that they open up a multiverse, another part of the multiverse, another alternate dimension or reality that we can experience. And generally we're confined to the resonant frequencies of survival. <laughs> you know, the ones sure. that keep us. But, I mean, you think about things like meditating and chanting and drumming and anything that changes your consciousness, alters your state of consciousness. Literally, what you're doing is changing the resonant frequency of your brain. Right. So and and I, I, and I, I think that, that's when some of these yeah. memories flood back of, of right. sort of how we are naturally very powerful. Exactly. And I think it's 
one of the things that we're learning is that if everything has its own resonant frequency, that includes other realities, other universes, that includes other timelines. And yeah. if we find the right one and we and we can figure out, you know, a way to get that resonant frequency amplified, perhaps we can create a rip in time and space and go back in time or have something come through from right. another time or another Qu- universe. Quantum jump, yeah. quantum leap yeah. to another exactly. version of, of our reality. <laughs> exactly. And that sounds like science fiction, but the funny thing is, is now it's it's theoretical physics and quantum <laughs> physics. So it's just so bizarre to think that those ideas that once sounded so new agey or, you know, sci-fi, they're becoming a part of our scientific reality. Absolutely. It's very interesting. And the other thing that came through that I thought was very interesting is this idea that the pyramids um, were built around the world. These, these, okay, so this idea that because this is a very violent planet, um, that this knowledge, this wisdom needed to be put in places that were fairly dry, stable, away from tectonic plates, a way that would last and be safe from the violence of the planet until such time as mankind began to evolve to the point where those resonant frequencies were available to him so that he could uh, or she could open up to this next um, level of consciousness. Um, I mean, are, are some of these places that are considered sacred uh, with this symbolic um, knowledge, are they in safe places? Well, it's funny because you find pyramids everywhere. I think there was uh, some study done where they showed 30 different countries. I mean, they're in Bolivia. They're in uh, the Mayan, you know, Mexico, in um, parts of Central America. They're in Korea. There are Cambodian step pyramids. They're in Egypt. They're in, uh, oh gosh, I'm going to blank. I think parts of Africa. Mm-hmm. You find different types of pyramids all over the world. This, first of all, what's really interesting about that is the shape. The pyramid shape, if you notice, it starts with a very big foundational base and it's built up towards a point in the sky. It's like a point of perfection. The Everybody who built these pyramids all seemed to know that that was the perfect way to build a structure, that it couldn't be destroyed, because most all of your weight is at the bottom, and the upper layers get smaller and smaller and lighter and lighter, so they're going to be, they're going to, you know, stand the test of time, but the triangle, that shape has always been considered the perfect shape. It, it is... Mm-hmm from the bottom up to the point of perfect, the point of struggle to the point of perfection at the top. So you've got this wonderful shape that's all over the world. It's one of the best ways to build something to stand the test of time. And then the fact that they were so uh, symbolic, and we always thought they were just burial chambers, but now we're learning, no, these were spiritual centers. These were places that people went to alter their consciousness. Exactly. And, yeah, and yeah. they're almost like, you go on a vision quest by walking up the steps of a step pyramid or 
you know, inside the king's chamber, you lay down and someone plays particular notes of music and you're off in another world, you know. We're learning all of this stuff now from what we thought were very crude chambers where people put their dead. No, you know, again, history is being rewritten constantly the more that we discover. I think it's fascinating. I had Rupert Sheldrake on the show, and he yeah. was talking about the morphic field. Morphic fields, right. Morphic right. fields, and how these are fields that, um, I guess, are, you know, the scientific, he's a biologist, and they've done yeah, studies. Yeah, they're natural biological resonant fields that are everywhere in nature, and including our own bodies. And that and, contain um, wisdom and knowledge that are, is right. passed on from generation to generation, that um, generations that, oh, they've done experiments with rats and things like that, where... Right. And it's almost like a big hologram. Like, each one of us are little pieces that broke off big hologram, but we contain the full image, the full picture within us. And I, you know, I've heard people say that the universe could be holographic. The mm -hmm. brain operates in a similar way. So the little morphic fields that we have uh, represent the larger field that we're all interacting in and we're all a part of, and it's just such a web of connectivity. And so all of the wisdom and information from the beginning of time is trapped in that field for us to learn from or try to access if we, you know, figure out the right vibrational frequency to do that. Sure. And, and, and you know, I think meditating, yeah. I think um, walking on the beach, all, all these types of... Are um, ways to do that, absolutely. Ways to access yeah. that. It's just fascinating. Well, yeah. wow. Well, thank you so much today for taking the time to talk to me about viral mythology. And just, I'm fascinated by all of the... Um, the knowledge that's in your head, Murray, and of course, Larry, too, that you've just spent um, so much of your life uh, and dedicated to exploring all of these mysteries. I think it's wonderful. Oh, I'm curious. <laughs> you know, I think curiosity is a good thing because it helps us learn more about who we are. Yeah, you're curious, but then you have this uh, interesting mix of scientific rigor you know you like to put things through some rigor um and uh, you know you really explore um so I, yeah. I i think it's a really nice combination i think you have to show both sides i think you have to show the left and right brain the scientific and the uh you know the, the other <laughs> put it yeah. in the big category of the other because again they both have truths to tell it's and very we important can't ignore one for the other we just can't yeah sometimes in the spiritual communities they um diss the left brain and yeah, they do it too and then the scientific <laughs> community but i think but there's this balance right it's like yeah. it should be balanced. It's like you know what it's like a coin there's two sides to a coin but the coin itself is is one thing and i think we're realizing that that's the way that we have to look at this yeah it's one unified truth but there may be two sides to it, the scientific and the more metaphysical side. Now, what is the best website for people to visit to learn more about your work and, and Larry's work, the work you do together, um, and the work you do by yourself? Right. For me, they can go to mariedjones.com. And for the work that I do with Larry, they can go to paraexplorers, P-A-R-A explorers, paraexplorers.com. Okay, great. And I'll, I'll put those both up on the website so people can find them easily. 
And right. then I'm also curious what you have, uh, what you're working on now. What Are you taking a break? Well, <laughs> um, no. <laughs> well, I'm going to a little bit, but we have a book that we just finished um, that'll be out in April. This is a real different direction for us called Mind Wars, The History of Mind Control and Electronic Surveillance. Ooh. And yeah, we're gonna we're taking a an objective look at the subject matter. But you know, we're also including some of the conspiratorial elements. And it's just really mm-hmm. shocking the research that we did finding out just how much truth there is and how much of this stuff is documented and actually has happened. So it's a it's another wake up call. Wow. Is that a little bit different for you in terms of um, Absolutely. You know, we sort of wading into into waters that people might not want you to wade into. Well, you know, we write about a lot of paranormal, metaphysical, unknown anomalies, ancient knowledge. And you almost can't write about that without running into hidden history, suppressed information. And that kind of leads into some of the more conspiratorial elements. And here's the thing about a lot of conspiracies, not all, but a lot, is that, where again, where there's smoke, there's fire. I've always been fascinated with media manipulation, mind control, social programming, because I, I see it. I mean, I'm pretty adept at kind of picking it out in the news. Mm-hmm. And, um, and we just really wanted to explore, hey, you know what, how much of this is provable? How much is documented? Uh, how much of this is a part of our history? And where are we going with things like electronic and drone surveillance? I because, know. again, technology is it's really scary. Yeah, yeah, technology is watching us. Oh, I'm so, so aware. I think people, people are very aware of that right now. I mean, I just upgraded yeah. to Yosemite X on my Mac, and they wanted me to say it's okay to put everything on my computer on the cloud. <laughs> I, like, yeah. I don't think so. <laughs> it's, scary. it's scary. I mean, and even things that, that may seem innocent, like you know, Facebook doing some social experimenting with our emotions by posting certain things. To me, that's mind manipulation. That's manipulating uh, emotion and feeling and advertising, you know, I think manipulates us into buying things. So it's a really broad book. I will really be interested in reading that because sometimes I feel, and I know I'm not the only one out there, I will be thinking, I will literally be thinking about something. I won't even... Maybe I haven't even done a search yet on Google about it. I'll just, I'll just right, be right. thinking about it. Maybe I'll have had a conversation in my kitchen with somebody about it, and maybe my cell phone sitting there. And then the next day, I go onto Facebook or one of these social media sites, and an ad is delivered to me about that very thing. Like I was talking, okay, just so you know how obscure, I was talking about a racerback bra. You know those crisscross bras that? Oh yeah, uh-huh. yeah, yeah. I just was having a conversation <laughs> in my living room with somebody about it. The next day, it's on my Facebook. Isn't that creepy? So now I'm thinking to myself, what device is listening to me, and metadating my 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 words into some massive database somewhere that's then exactly. serving me an ad? You know, is that happening? Well, let, <laughs> let me tell you, and and again, we we really worked hard to do solid research. <clears throat> And and it's scary because our cell phones are they're, they're smartphones, okay? Just just that term, smartphone, should tell you something. We're being listened to, we're being observed. Our keystrokes are being tracked. And I'm not saying this in that creepy, ooh, you know, Manchurian candidate 
regardless of the fact that is a factual documented part of our history, there are people who want to make money off of us. Oh, sure. And they're going to use every means possible to try to find out how to do that. But there are also people that want to keep us in a certain level of control. So between the surveillance for advertising purposes and the surveillance for, you know, political or religious purposes, what have you, yeah, we're constantly being watched. Well, we'll have to yeah, definitely great. have you back on in the spring when that Absolutely. book comes out. Absolutely, yes. You know what? <laughs> me, email me your address, and I'll make sure that um, the PR company gets you a copy because it's fast. It was mind blowing to research. Wow, well, I'm really <laughs> excited. That'll be yeah, great. it really was. That'll be great. Well, thank you so much. It's always so fun to have you on and talk about this stuff. Oh, Not many people I can talk to about these weird things. <laughs> I know, we always have great conversations. Oh, I would love to come back, absolutely. All right, take care now, we'll see you soon. You take care, thank you, okay. bye-bye. Bye-bye. Uh, Marie D. Jones, as, whoops, as always, a pleasure to talk to. She is such a great mind and such a great thinker, and I really appreciate her courage in exploring some of the things that she explores. So check her out online and I just want to say thank you so much for listening to Wisdom Radio find out more at wisdomradio.org I always put my latest shows up there who's coming up next and I also have a mailing list that I encourage you to join so I can keep you in the loop until next time remember who you are and what you know this is Andy Height Yeah.